This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Alan Paul discusses his new book, One Way Out, the inside history of the Allman Brothers Band. Then our own Rose Fox shares some exciting new historical romance novels. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookskin. The fiction list, James Patterson as Is Traditional, debuts at number one. Uh, this, is, this title is Private L.A., which he co-wrote with Mark Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the seventh installment in the Private series, the third one that features world-renowned private investigator Jack Morgan, who's the head of private investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, so far, PW didn't review it, but looking at the consumer reviews, places like Amazon, people are pretty happy with it. They're saying it's much better than Private Berlin, previous title in the series, and uh, certainly looks like it'll probably stay at our number one spot for another week or two while people are grabbing that up. Now, isn't it Patterson who's just uh, started to make a donation to uh, independent uh, booksellers? Uh, I don't know. I thought it was a million dollars, and he just made the first 250,000 installment to various organizations and to booksellers, so to help, uh, maybe to to his way of giving back. Oh, that's excellent. I hadn't heard about that at all. Very cool. And next, uh, number two on the hardcover fiction list, Jonathan Kellerman with Killer. This is an Alex Delaware novel. Um, the PW Review says that Kellerman's experience in the field, uh, he's a psychologist, uh, makes him very well suited to describe a psychologist's work without either dumbing it down or resorting to excessive jargon. This is Kellerman's 29th novel featuring Alex Delaware. So that series is chugging along. Mm, And as I said, number two. And if it weren't for Patterson's star power, I'm sure it would be at number one. Mm And uh, at number eight on the the list, uh, this is a bit of a mystery. It's S by filmmaker J.J. Abrams and novelist Doug Durst. And that came out in October. It's been on the list. I mean, it's been out for 14 weeks, but this is its first time cracking uh, the top 10 in a while. So I have no idea why suddenly S became popular. Maybe a new edition came out. Right. Maybe uh, there was some special some discount some giveaway i don't know but there it is at number eight it's a it's a mystery much like the book which itself is very twisty and turny and at number 15 is the martian by andy weir uh i i have a little bit of a personal investment in this i've known andy a really long time oh really Uh, yeah he's an old friend uh, a friend of a friend out in back when i lived in california so uh almost 15 years ago and uh, he's just a really great guy this is his first novel we gave it a starred review which i had nothing to do with (laughs) i know it was covered in the thriller section which uh, i don't handle at all um but it's a it's it's a sort of science fictional thriller uh dust storm strands an astronaut on mars and forces his landing crew to abandon the mission and return to earth so he's presumed dead he's alone on mars no communication limited supplies but he's a fix-it guy he's a he's a macgyver type and Mm -hmm. so he does his best and he gets to work and he finds a way to survive and become a martian 
And we say that deftly avoiding the problem of the Robinson Crusoe tale that bogs down in repetitious behavior, Weir uses Watney's proactive nature and determination to survive to keep the story escalating to a riveting conclusion. Oh, fantastic. So that's at number 15 on our hardcover list. Congratulations, Andy. Yes, The Martian. So um, nonfiction, we've been talking uh, a little bit about how books... uh, creep up on there that are based on uh, games, mm-hmm. uh, either novelized forms, that's in, in, in fiction, uh, but in nonfiction, and it seems like this happening about once a month now with some regularity. Number four, Lightning Returns, Final Fantasy Thirteen, The Complete Official Guide, The Collector's Edition, um, huh. based on this game. Now, that's that's at number four. It's a uh, $23.99 book, and um, it's got... You know, two bookmarks. Uh, they say for easy navigation. It's it's a really nicely done book uh, for fans uh, who, who want to have this collector's edition, but also as guidebooks. I love that it has bookmarks in there. So as you're reading, you can say, "Well, I need to learn this mm-hmm. or this or this is one clue there." Um, and it also includes a uh, uh, a free download of the Art of War, which comprises an outfit, weapon, and shield. So. It's a pretty nicely found book for fans of the game, and it's number four. That's, that's really interesting because, you know, I play a lot of retro video games mm-hmm. myself. I, right. I have, I have you know, a Nintendo emulator on my laptop and so on. And uh, whenever I need a map or something, I go online. There are lots and lots of fan sites where all of this material is available for free. People write walkthroughs and guides and just, you know, share it with the gaming community. So it's really interesting that uh, publishers are finding a way to still get people to spend money on this basically by making these posh collector's editions that right. that sort of evoke maybe a little nostalgia and and also help people feel like they're real fans they're devoted fans yeah and i wonder if they if if this you know appeals to a certain age demographic maybe uh or or not maybe it's just something to you know and something as ephemeral as a game where uh you know it's it's you play it and it's gone or you continue play it over the period of time but here's something that you can actually hold on to. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Number 12 is HRC State Secrets and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton by Jonathan Allen and uh, Amy Parnes. And um, Jonathan Allen, uh, he's from the Politico. And uh, this is a, um, a book about Hillary Clinton. Uh, it's a political biography that journeys into the heart of Hillary land to, as the jacket says, discover brilliant strategist at work. So that's at number 12, debuting there. And at number 13, uh, we have The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History by Elizabeth uh, Colbert. Uh, she's the New Yorker staff writer, author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe. And in our review, we say that she accomplishes an amazing feat in her latest book, which superbly blends the depressing facts associated with rampant species extin- extinctions and impending ecosystem collapse with stellar writing to produce a text that is accessible, witty, scientifically accurate, and impossible to put down. Now, this book has been covered in all the major newspapers and um, magazines, and um, uh, it's no surprise that it's on the top of the list. I mean, she she's a very popular writer, science writer. So, number 13. All right. And uh, that's what we have on our top 2025, I should say. All right. Well, I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Alan Paul will tell us why everyone's talking about the Almond Brothers. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Alan Paul on the line. He's the author of One Way Out, the inside history of the Allman Brothers Band. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your book and what made you decide to write about this particular band. Well, the book is an oral history that takes in the whole scope of the Allman Brothers' 45-year career, uh, actually even from before their 1969 formation, uh, right up as close as I could get to today, given the vagaries of publishing. Um, and uh, it includes a lot of material that had never been published before, a lot of things that I, after 25 years of writing about the band, had not known. So uh, it's, it's, it's been an interesting ride for me. I got into the band professionally covering them in 1990 when they had just reformed. I was a young journalist just starting my career and I had been a longtime fan of the band going back to when I was uh, 12 or 13 years old and my parents would drop me off and let me roam around the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh uh, rather miraculously. Probably something I wouldn't let my kids do but I'm glad they did. and as I then spent about 25 years covering them as a journalist, uh, mostly for Guitar World magazine, but also did interviews for the Wall Street Journal and, and some other places with them. And over this period, I developed uh, relationships with some of the guys, with especially Warren Haynes, the guitar player, with uh, Kirk West, who's the band's, uh, was the band's road manager from 1989 to 2009. And these uh, things just were able to bring me in deeper and deeper. And, you know, you need that much time and and access and trust before you can really start getting into some really interesting uh, material, especially for people who've been around for as long as they have and have been what they consider burned by journalists and tend to be a bit uh, reticent to really open up. You know, what you're describing uh, makes me think of that movie, Almost Famous. I mean, hearing about you <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, wandering around the uh, the arena, uh, getting quotes, meeting these uh, th- these musicians who were who were big and had been big for a long time. And what what originally, you know, as a kid or young journalist, what, what drew you to, to their music? Well, it's hard for me to just to say what drew me to their music when I was really a kid and first getting into them. It's just hard for me to put myself in that in that frame of mind. Although one of the things, you know, my brother handed me a copy of Eat a Peach, uh, their great album, and, and sort of told me to listen to that, which was just, you know, a wonderful thing. So I thank him, and that's why I dedicated the book to my brother. Let me sit on that yellow shag carpet of his for hours listening to it, which also reminded me of a scene from Almost Famous, actually, where, where his sister uh, gives him, I think, Pink Floyd. Uh, and I think there's a great tradition of older brothers and sisters turning their younger siblings on. Uh, so I'm proud to be in that tradition. Uh, and I would sit there listening to the music and holding the Eat a Peach, and the graphical representation on that album was also very appealing to me. And, uh, you know, the, the album itself with the famous peach on a truck, yep. and also the inside gatefold uh, of, of a double vinyl album had this whole psychedelic world. I, I didn't really know what it was, but I just thought it was so cool. And uh, I'm, I'm happy that I was became, you know, developed a relationship with David Powell, one of the artists who did that. And I have an original piece of art by him uh, on the uh, um, end papers of the, of the book, which I'm also very, very pleased about. Oh, that's pretty impressive. And of course, the Eat a Peach uh, was the album released after Dwayne Allman died. Uh, right. the, he, he died uh, during the recording of it. They had only recorded uh, three songs with him. And when he died, nobody knew if they would be 
able to continue. So the the album, I think, has tremendous significance uh, because it's a great album, but also because it's, it's this sort of incredible statement of uh, perseverance and persistence that the band, to me, would come to personify. And, and, and when you talk about what appealed about them, I don't think that was part of the initial musical appeal, but as an author, I think it's a big part of what makes the story so compelling because the drama and the tragedy that they face is, is really unbelievable. And there's, there's been many steps along the way where nobody would have blamed them for sort of folding their you know cards and getting up from the table. And they just kept uh, kept going, kept moving on, and uh, I think that alone makes it a pretty compelling story. So, is there anything this time around through their stories that surprised you? Um, maybe an- anything that came from Greg Allman's new memoir that came out in 2012, uh, or or other things, stories that you heard just for the first time while putting this together? Right. Uh, actually, a lot of things. Um, you know, I had spent, like I said, about 25 years working on the band, uh, working with the band as a journalist writing stories. I had originally published this book in a much, much uh, smaller version as an ebook. It became an Amazon single, uh, and it did pretty well. That was a distillation of sort of all the work I had done up to that point. And it was good, but I knew that there were a lot of holes. I mean, as I was putting it together, I was thinking, oh, I'd like to know more about this. I'd like to know more about that. But I didn't know what was going to come of it, and I, I didn't really want to start doing new interviews. But that's ultimately what I decided to do. And when I first started to do it, I thought, based on that ebook, I had a very strong vision of what I was missing. I thought I knew, boy, if I could talk to Chuck Lavelle about this, that would be great. If I could get Greg to expand on that, that would be great. That will finish that. I'll get Dickie Betts to answer this question. And that's what I started doing. But I also wanted to talk to ancillary people. And I started going to people that I hadn't interviewed or I had only briefly interviewed, including road managers, uh, uh, other members of the band, like percussionists. Mark Quinones, I uh, had known for years, but never formally interviewed. Uh, J-Mo, the drummer, one of the founding members, also had known for years and, and had interviewed, but never extensively. And I started to learn things from them, and it made me pause and realize that in, in, in essence, it was arrogant of me to think that I knew so much, and I knew what holes had to be filled, and that that was really a, not their way to write a book, a <laughs> way to write you know a book that would befit this band I had to really just explore. I had to listen. I'd open my mind and go wherever these guys took me. And so each time when I started trying to answer these specific questions or fill one hole, I would do that. But sometimes I would open up four or five more holes or questions or things that I wanted to know more about. And so once I started opening that stuff up, that's when it got interesting for me. And that's when I think uh, that that's the stuff that I think even the most hardcore fans who think they know everything about the band are going to be surprised about. And what made you decide to approach it uh, in the form of an oral history? I decided to present it as an oral history uh, essentially because I, I really like the format. I've always enjoyed writing it. I've written uh, several over the years in, in a magazine format, which were pretty long. But a long magazine article runs to eight or 10,000 words. Uh, it's a lot different than going into 100,000 type of words. Um, it presented its own challenges. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, it can be a really lazy form of red oral histories that I think are a bit frustrating 
being lazy and slapped together. But when uh, done properly, which you, you know I hope mine was, I certainly made every effort to. It actually takes a tremendous amount of uh, discipline and focus to keep the story moving in a narrative sense uh, in that format. But I wanted to stick with it because uh, for a few reasons. One is that. I think that these guys had such strong voices. I mean, each of these guys, and I, there's almost 70 characters uh, in the in the book, including the road managers, the managers, uh, friends like Eric Clapton and Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top and Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead, and of course the band members. They all had such strong voices. I mean, I felt like half of them or more could have been characters created by Elmore Leonard. And they, their dialogue and their quotes were so remarkable that I thought that the strongest thing I could do was to sort of step back, stay out of the way. They didn't need my editorial voice that much and let them speak. Uh, the other reason I liked it is that there was a lot of places where uh, you start to talk about something and there's two or three versions of an event. Now, I did the same due diligence I would in any uh, kind of writing I was doing. I didn't publish anything if I knew it was wrong or, or, or it was verifiably incorrect. But there's a lot of gray area in which you just don't know. And I like the idea of presenting the two versions side by side and sort of letting the people decide because I, I feel like that's a reflective of life. It's no different than any story that, that might happen in your life or my life where 10 people are in a room and you talk about it 10 years later, much less 40 or 45 years later at some times, and there's going to be different visions of what happened. Sure. Mark was asking me what happened at a meeting last week, and I couldn't remember. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right, right, right. And um, you said you wanted to step out of the way, so I'm very curious about your, your quote, highly opinionated discography that appears right. in the back. That, that seems to be one place where you decide you wanted to stick your oar in. That's right. Well, there's lots of places uh, that, that I stick myself in there <laughs> to some extent. I mean, there's nine sidebar stories, uh, which mostly came about because they're things that I thought were important to cover that either didn't fit into the oral history format or that I felt uh, just deserved to be highlighted on their own. And I'm very pleased with a couple of them in particular, uh, one on Greg Allman's songwriting, because he has this huge debt and love and allegiance to California. California folk uh, like Tim Buckley, Neil Young, Jackson Brown that I don't think a lot of people know. So I was very pleased to be able to present that side of him. Uh, the discography, I felt that it was important at the end of a book or at some place in a book about a band, especially with a legacy, recorded legacy as extensive as theirs, to provide a discography. Could have just been a list, but I don't really think that serves anybody. Uh, and I do come from a rock critic, rock writer's background, so I have opinions about all these things, that I, and I wanted to share them. So two years ago, Greg Allman came out with his memoir, My Cross to Bear. And this year, um, uh, Galadriel Allman, I th and I'm not too sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. Right, I believe you are. Okay, good. Is coming out with a book about her father, the late right. uh, Dwayne Allman. What do you think is all the interest in the books coming out? Why now? Well, I think, I mean, Greg had been talking about writing a, a memoir for a long time, and I guess he just was, was ready to do it. You know, he had gone through a lot. He had a liver transplant. Uh, he, he came out the other side of that. And I think, you know, he was at the point of his life where he's looking at wanting to get his vision of his life down. Uh, and, and they're now moving forward on a movie on that, which I, I believe is starting production next month. Uh, Galadriel, similarly, as far as I know, uh, has been talking talking 
about writing a book about her quest to get to know her father through his music and through his friends for a long, long time. Uh, why it's all happening right now, I'm not exactly sure. I, I suspect that Galadriel and I both had in mind our, our publishers in terms of getting these books out in such a similarly time fashion uh, because the band next month in March will be celebrating their 45th anniversary. Mm, wow. So your previous book was called Big in China, My Unlikely Adventures, Raising a Family, Playing the Blues, and Becoming a Star in Beijing. Tell us right. just a little bit about that. It's a great title. Uh, thank you very much. Well, you know, it's funny because it relates back to this book uh, to some extent, which is in the sense that I probably, you know, 10 years ago or more, it would have seemed like a very logical thing for me to write a book about the Allman Brothers 10 years ago to anyone who knew me or followed my career or followed the Allman Brothers and they're writing about them closely. But in 2005, I took sort of a total step off of this path uh, and I moved to Beijing. My wife is an editor at the Wall Street Journal and she was named the China Bureau Chief. Mm -hmm. uh, and we just sort of took this wild fling. Neither of us had been really China people uh, per se, but the opportunity came up and I actually really pushed her to take it. I just thought it was something that we couldn't turn down. Uh, our kids were two, four, and seven, so it was quite a leap into the unknown to do that with these little kids. And I went over there with no plans really other than to get the family settled and see what, what happened. And that's sort of what I did for the first year and I, I really loved it there. I threw myself into it, started to learn the language. Uh, and in my second year, there, I had always played guitar and, and you know been a guitarist, but more of a guitar journalist, working at Guitar World. But I met a fantastic Chinese musician by the name of Woody Wu, and uh, Woody and I just connected. He had fixed a guitar for me. It turned out he had a tattoo of Stevie Ray Vaughan, which just blew my mind. And uh, we decided to jam together. We ended up forming a band, which had the na only name it could have, Woody Allen. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> really, it was just for fun. Uh, you know, it, my biggest goal at the beginning was just to get together and play for some friends and ha have fun. And I was thrilled that a musician of Woody's caliber was interested in playing with me. But one thing led to another. We ended up adding two other Chinese members who were phenomenal musicians, top-shelf Chinese musicians, and an American friend of mine. And we became pretty popular and ended up touring all over China. We won an award as the best band in Beijing. And uh, it was just really, really crazy ride. So uh, the book, Big in China, is, is about that whole experience. Uh, the first third is sort of about this wild idea to move to China and getting settled there with, with the kids and the family. And the second part is more about the band and its success and some other very interesting characters that I, that I met. And what's next for you? You know, I really, uh, I really don't know. I don't have a plan right now. I hope something great. Uh, you know, when I was in the middle of writing and then promoting Big in China, I really didn't think about what was next. And part of the reason that I ended up leaping into this was uh, in the original ebook version that ended up becoming this book that I, I'm now so proud of. Well, 
was, you know, I had sold the movie rights to Big in China, to Ivan Reitman. A script was in development. I was having a lot of conversations with the screenwriter. I had these very intense, in-depth conversations, and then two weeks would go by, and I wouldn't hear anything. And I didn't have any control over it because I had sold all the rights. Right. But uh, so I had no control, but it was driving me crazy. So I, I needed something else to do, some, a, a real project to do. Um, so I flung myself into this, and it, it became this, this great consuming project for for a couple of years at a ending with this book i'm very very proud of so um i'm hoping something else will present itself but, but right now i'm just really really focused on uh getting the word out on this book and then i'm going to be focused on relaxing and taking a deep breath <laughs> and then i'm going to figure out what's next oh wonderful well we've been talking with alan paul you can find his book one way out in stores right now alan thank you so much for joining us Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for the great review. It was wonderful to get that in the start. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Rose Fox takes us back to Romantic Regency England, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today our own Rose Fox will highlight some exciting new and forthcoming historical romance novels. So, hello, Rose. Hi, Mark. It's nice to be here. (laughs) It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. So, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, I think, Regency romances, which is a whole subgenre of the genre of romance. Can you tell us? about Regency, what's the appeal, and why it's been going up for so long. I mean, Regency is such a big field in which books are published. So the Regency was a period of of English history. It's actually a very, very brief period. Um, There was a a time when uh, there was the the prince regent who was holding the throne, but not officially the king. And it was a time of a lot of social change, a lot of upheaval in England, and it's a moment that's very ripe for exploration and, and on the surface it's all about very wealthy people and glittering gowns and balls and so forth um, and I'll, underneath that is a lot of interesting stuff about social class about changing times changing cultures uh, the Regency period was the period that Jane Austen lived in and wrote about and so you could say that she uh, kind of kicked it off but today's Regency romances are very unlike hers um, it, Austen was extremely concerned with class I mean, it, you, you look at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice and it is literally about how a man with money wants a wife like that that is that is that famous first sentence that, right. that's what it comes down to is a man with money wants a wife right um, and she was you know, the the entire Bennett family is very concerned with how much money does he make and you know, will he be able to keep our daughters and uh, will we be able to keep our house and it, it was it was very very overt it was very blatant you, like you knew what somebody's income is and compared to the present day when you probably don't know what your coworkers' salaries are um it's ev- everything's different now but at the time you know, that that class consciousness and the concerns about money were um, very much surface level everybody talked about it everybody knew about it um you would say very frankly well i have an income of five thousand pounds a year or whatever and and you know people just knew that sort of thing and so that that was that really informed the culture um, and the idea of who got married to whom. 
but at the same time there were these notions of of romantic love and those notions are much stronger nowadays and so in a lot of ways the regency romance is often about the clash between marrying for money or marrying for a title marrying for some sort of real world advancement and the romantic ideal the your eyes meet your heart beats mm-hmm. that that sort of thing which of course with jane austen was uh, kind of like the fight between that it's like here's who you're supposed to marry but this is who i really want to marry yeah and i mean austen again played with that but um she was a, a very moralistic writer and so as you look at a book like emma and it's really just all about emma getting her come up and she mm-hmm. starts out with these very firm ideas of who should marry whom she's a matchmaker she's going to put people together and all of her ideas are terrible um and and at the same time she completely fails to see um the ideal match for herself that's right in front of her face and so austin had firm ideas about who should marry whom but some of them were very class-based some of them were um very very moralistic and again they bear very little resemblance to what we think of nowadays as romantic right and again for modern readers and especially recently um this has been really interesting when uh, i'll digress briefly but when uh, romance ebooks got really big and romance was sort of the first segment of fiction publishing to take advantage of digital publishing mm-hmm. and digital self-publishing uh, immediately all of these authors started writing all about sex because there were things that you could not put in a romance novel and have it sell at a place like walmart for example but you could put it online mm-hmm. and so the erotica segment of the industry just exploded Mm. And publishers who were a little nervous about this whole ebook thing took a look at that and said, hmm, there are all these women out there who want to buy erotic content. Why don't we sell it to them? And so you start seeing more erotic content making its way into romance novels across the board, every genre of romance, historical, contemporary, romantic suspense, paranormal romance. Um, Suddenly, the physical attraction, the physical component became much more pronounced. Mm -hmm. And and this wasn't necessarily the the bodice ripper sort where he ravishes her while she says no and means yes. That's that's a a much more old-fashioned idea, and you see very little of that these days. Now it's much more about women feeling desire and uh, trying to figure out, again, can they safely give in to that desire? When I look at historical romance novels, I see a lot of plots that feel very contemporary. Um, Since uh, 2001, for example, there's been an amazing amount of romance that's about war and about people who come back from war, men who come back from war with what we would now recognize as post-traumatic stress, uh, who are plagued by nightmares, who have injuries, and how the love of a good woman can help them recover and help them heal. Um, It's a very contemporary story. A lot of romance readers are living that story. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll also see contemporary storylines where women say well do i want to have sex with this guy do i want to give in should i have sex before marriage outside of marriage right. now that i'm a widow uh, and and you know all all of that is very much woven into these books so although the setting is historical that's a way of maybe taking just a step back a little bit of remove so you can talk about these actually incredibly important emotionally deep powerful concepts that have a lot of meaning to contemporary readers. 
Wow. So so what books uh, do you have on the docket for us today? So I've got four books. All of these books got starred reviews in Publishers Weekly. Um, we thought they were really cream of the crop. Uh, and a lot of them deal with these social issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple that are already out, three that are already out, and uh, and then one more that's coming out next month. Um, so we'll start with uh, The Scandal and Kissing an Heir by Sophie Barnes. Uh, we say it's fun and full of red hot passion. This is an interesting uh, sort of setup for a series. It's the second book in a series. Uh, The third one is coming out this summer in July. And they... All the stories in the series start at the same ball. They start at the same event, uh, which, you know, these balls were a very social place. It was one of the few places where you could spend some time in, not precisely in seclusion with a member of the opposite sex, but um, men and women could dance together. And while they were dancing together, they might flirt. They might say things where more or less no one could overhear them because of the the noise and the crush of people. And so um, there's, there's a lot of social opportunity, a lot of romantic opportunity at such a social event. Um, this is a, a masquerade ball also, which uh, offers uh, a lot of opportunity for mystery. Uh, for The first book is very much a Cinderella style, mm-hmm. sort of who was that woman? How can I find her? Um, and this one uh, has new protagonists giving their perspective on the same events. Uh, and uh, a young woman uh, meets and falls for a dashing, notorious rake. Uh, again, we have the the bad boy who can be reformed by the love of a good woman. This this theme will never die. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's perpetually popular. Um, in this case, the young man uh, is heir to a marquis, and he has been ordered to find a suitable wife or risk being disinherited. Um, this is this is. Uh, again, a pretty popular idea that you have the the wise older person saying, "Well, you need to stop all of this wenching and settle down." And um, he is certainly besotted by the young woman, but he's rejected by her guardians. So, um, because he has this reputation mm. as a rake, as as a lech, um, they think that he is completely unsuitable for her, and um, they're the ones who have control over her because in you know, the social structure of the time, a woman's parents are guardians were the ones who decide who she got to marry. So the two of them get together to plot. Um, they, it, she wants to get out of a, an arranged marriage to an odious man. He needs to find a wife so that he doesn't lose his inheritance. Clearly, the ideal thing is for them to get married if they can just figure out a way to do it. Uh, and so the story follows their plotting, their scheming. Uh, and you know, gradually, they find out that they're also not just practically compatible, but romantically compatible. Mm. And you had mentioned earlier about how since uh, a lot of e-publishing books have become more uh, at times erotic, has has the Regency changed in that regard too? Has your typical Regency novel changed in that? So something you've read before, you know, maybe the 1990s, you would have a little bit more of eroticism in the Regency novels published now than before. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there there is a range. Um, I see books from inspirational publishers, uh, Christian publishers that are specifically marketed as, you know, the curtain is drawn over that tender scene, mm-hmm. nothing explicit, nothing more than a kiss or two, no premarital sex. Um, and then, you know, you compare to other series where you might have an entire series uh, based around the dilemmas of, of a young woman who finds herself pregnant out of wedlock mm-hmm. uh, or or 
you know, other considerations like that. And some have very explicit scenes and some don't. Uh, it really it really varies. Yeah. You can often um, tell a bit by the publisher or the, the imprint. Um, in this case, the Sophie Barnes is an Avon title. Um, Avon also has the Avon Red imprint, which is specifically for more erotic romance. Mm-hmm. So they, they carefully distinguish that because when you're a reader, if you do want sex and it's not there, then you're disappointed. And if you don't want sex and it is there, then you're disappointed. Right. And you know, they, they want to make sure readers find the books that, sure. that really work yeah. for them. So um, the the Barnes is uh, really excellent. I'm, we also starred the first book in the series, and I'm looking forward to the third one. The next book I wanted to talk about was Vanessa Kelly's Secrets for Seducing a Royal Bodyguard. This is a series kickoff. Uh, it's an, a nice, hefty book. It's probably a good 400 pages here yeah. um, from Zebra Historical. And uh, we say it's a, a royal treat. Um, this is uh, stepping a little bit down from the dukes and duchesses and uh, and the royals. Here we have um, a captain of the royal guards. So uh, this is a way of giving people the, the glitter and glamour, but without necessarily the... Yeah, after a while, you start wondering, how many dukes are there? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, Dukes and duchesses everywhere. Um, so This is a little bridge then from, from noble people to commoners, this, yeah. this bridge right here. So. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so there's a young woman, uh, again, who uh, he needs to protect, and he also thinks that he needs to protect her from himself and protect himself from her. Uh, he's a very stoic guy. He doesn't have a lot of uh, desire for emotional connection. He wants to keep himself very closely guarded, as befits his situation as a guard. Oh. And once again, we have uh, a class issue, a money issue. Um, Vivian, the heroine, has been introduced to an evil Russian prince, a suspected murderer and serial abuser of women, and he wants Vivian as his bride. So, of course, she doesn't want to be with him, but her brother uh, says, well, this guy's rich, and so marry him, and you get all of his money, and then our family will, will survive. It, they're, they're very broke families. So, again, there is this tension. Who is an appropriate consort? Um, who you know, does is money enough to make somebody an appropriate match? Right. Um, and in this case, obviously not. Uh, and uh, our review says that characters who could be flat cliches are made very fresh and appealing by dramatic storytelling. Um, and Kelly combines diverting dialogue, delightful surprises, and finely tuned pacing to make this a winner. And I have to note that Vanessa Kelly is also the author of uh, the book with the best Regency romance title of all time, uh, which is and the single Earl. <laughs> so uh, that one's also out. You can find it now. Uh, the third book I wanted to talk about is uh, from Tessa Dare. She really stormed onto the scene a few years ago, right. and uh, we've just given her books one starred review after another. She's just an extraordinary writer. Um, I did a profile of her mm-hmm. for PW a couple years back. Um, she's just she's just terrific, um, and you know, she does really smart, interesting things. So she just wrapped up a series that's set in a small town that is mostly populated by women. These are women who have felt outcast from society for mm-hmm. whatever reason and uh, who all end up in this this town called Spindle Cove, which of course people make fun of as Spinster Cove, yeah. these unmarriageable, sure, troublesome yes. women. Yeah. Um, and they all find love one way or another, And uh, but they never stop being their extraordinary selves. Right. So Dare really loves writing about um, not necessarily outrageous women, but very self-possessed women, uh, women who have priorities that are not necessarily in line with the mores of the time. 
Um, and in this historical, uh, it provides a unique twist to the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale. Uh, a young woman is left penniless when her father dies. He was a writer, um, and her one ray of hope is a letter telling her that she's inherited a castle from her godfather. Uh, so the castle, unfortunately, already has a resident uh, who doesn't realize it's been sold out from under him. He's blind, and so he's not been able to read any of the letters from his lawyers. And so they enter into this debate over who owns the castle. Does she get it? Does he get it? Uh, and it, she basically shows up on his doorstep and says, well, this is my home now. I have nowhere else to go. Right. Um, and he says, well, I don't want you. I don't want you here. Leave me alone. And she says, well, the truth of this must be somewhere in this pile of letters. Let me read them for you. And so as she becomes his secretary, through this intimacy of reading his mail, um, they develop a more romantic intimacy. Uh, and gradually, of course, the story, the question of ownership is resolved by uh, the two of them jointly owning the castle and getting together. But uh, I, I, love, I love that Dare just comes up with these stories that really touch on important aspects of the time. The young woman is so frustrated because she has been portrayed as the heroine of her father's books. And so everybody thinks of her as this character in a right. book. And she's like, no, I'm a real person. And and that's that's another one of those themes, particularly for women and most of the readers of romance novels, though not all are women, um, where you say, you know, you have these ideas of who I am, but that's not who I am. Let me tell you who I really am. And this seems like a diversion, obviously, from, from a traditional, what would you think of Regency? Absolutely, yeah. There, there's there's not a lot of glitter and glamour here. There's a yeah. big dusty old castle and a lot of piles of letters and legal questions. And um, it's very much about the written word, about the power of the written word. And obviously what makes it a Regency still is it's in that short time period you had described and it's just following different different characters and these aren't even noble characters they aren't uh princes or princesses that's right um i i can't swear that this one is specifically a regency this is one of those things where you you really you open the book and you look for the date um and it's not made explicit here so right. it could be taking place um later on in uh the 19th century sure. and more in the victorian era yeah. and certainly um questions about writing were particularly of of interest in the victorian eras and you know, novels became very right. big you had authors like dickens uh, everybody was reading and talking about what they were reading right, right. So um, in some ways, it feels a little bit more like a Victorian storyline. But on the other hand, the woman on the cover is wearing a Regency dress. So ah, true, true. <laughs> um, yes. we'll, we'll just have to guess. But uh, it, it still, it, it works, yeah. um, regardless of the exact year that it's set. Uh, and finally, I wanted to mention Jane Ashford's The Bride Insists. This is coming out in March from Sourcebooks Casablanca. Um, Ashford's Once Again, A Bride was one of my favorite books of last year. Um, she does these double romances where uh, you will have an upper class character and their servant, and each of them finds a romance um, at their appropriate level. Mm -hmm. So the servant finds another servant to fall for, and um, the upper class person finds another upper class person to fall for. And you know, it, it could seem a little trite, but she really, she really makes it work. Yeah. Um, and it's very almost deferential to the, the mores of the period because 
you will see cross-class romances, but they were very rare and they were very hard. Mm -hmm. um, you would be shunned by everyone if you, right. if you went too far outside the bounds. Um, so this is uh, also a romance that plays with gender expectations. Uh, there's a woman who has inherited a lot of money, but it's all managed by her cousin until it transfers to her husband because you know she's just a woman. What does she know about money? Um, so she finds a penniless baron and says, I'll marry you and I'll use my money to improve your estate as long as I keep control. And he says, well, I'm, I'm broke. I, I need money. So, okay, I will sign these legal documents saying that you get to keep control of the finances. Mm -hmm. They get married. Their marriage is great. She gets along well with his very rowdy younger sisters. She helps to uh, improve the house and clean everything up and, and hire tradespeople. And they get along very well in the bedroom. And so he thinks, any minute now she is going to uh, realize that what she wants is to have me run things the way a man should mm. any minute now she's going to go back to that narrative now that she realizes she's happy with me and she's like no no i'm i'm great with things the way they right. are and what ashford does um really wouldn't work in in lesser hands but uh, she's got a knack for it she uh head hops um, so you'll have a discussion between the two uh, protagonists and you'll see the same conversation from each of their perspectives and they both take completely different things away from it. So uh, what might seem sort of trite uh, conflicts between two people, um, trite misunderstandings that could be easily resolved. You can really see how they how they got there. How uh, when when she says, "Well, uh, no, I, I want to hire this particular tradesperson," and right. he says, "Oh." Well, okay. Then what she hears is, okay, great, I get to do that. And what he hears is, any minute now, she's going to change her mind. <laughs> and, and because they both bring such different perspectives, right. um, they have this very different understanding of, of how their relationship works and how it will work in the future. Uh, and there is, again, the secondary romance. Her hired lady's companion falls in love with a vicar. And uh, the two of them, uh, again, speak of very, of very practical matters. And that's a very sweet, almost Austen-like right. uh, sub-romance sub there that I really enjoyed reading about so ashford's uh really got got a knack for this uh, and i i think this is definitely one of her better books well rose it's always uh, you know always wonderfully insightful to have you talk about genres you always introduce me and and i think our listeners to something uh that we always that at least i have assumptions about and and here it is it sounds uh, really wonderful delightful so rose thank you oh wow that's always, always nice to talk to you to learn new things <laughs> always good to be here and that's it for today's show i I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 